What a wonder and a precious gift, our Father, that you have thrown open to us the doors of your council chambers. You have delivered over to us a priceless body of truth, disclosing your very heart to us, and you have called us to embrace that truth in faith. But this raises vital questions for us as to our part and our response. How do we relate to this gift you have given us? What do we do with it? What is our ability? What is our responsibility? Our calling by you? Teach us these things and more today. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, this truth should be firmly established in everybody's mind by now. Having a biblical understanding of faith and having biblical faith is everything. It's essential. It's, the, it's a huge thing. Sadly, it's a unique thing to have a biblical understanding of faith and to have biblical faith. But at the same time, merely understanding about faith and even merely possessing faith is not everything. Jude, half-brother of the Lord Jesus, writes about this very issue. What do we do with this faith that God has delivered to us and called us to accept by faith? What do we do? What are we called by God to do in response to this gift? Our spiritual health depends on it. Our personal experience of God's love depends on it. Our faithfulness as children of God, as saints, depends on it. High stakes. So to understand what he says to us, we've got to understand two vital areas of truth. First of all, then, let us see, Roman numeral one, what we must understand about the faith. Verse three teaches us about the faith. Let me read the LSB version of Jude, verse three. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So first then we're going to, seeing what we must understand about the faith, we see that verse three teaches us about the faith that it is a crucial issue. It is a crucial issue. What does Jude say? He says he was going to write us a different letter than the letter he ended up writing us. What was he going to write about? He says, I I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation. Well, I'd like to have read that letter, wouldn't you? A letter that simply talks about the great things God has done for us in Christ, the great blessings that are ours in Christ, that maybe a a more peaceful sort of meditation and, and musing and digestion of these great, wonderful, glorious truths. But Jude says that while he was in the act of doing that very thing, he was struck with a need to write a very different sort of letter. What was the the need that came to him? Verse 4 tells us, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They're already here and nobody saw them come. They've snuck in, he says. What sorts of persons? Those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality. That's outrageous behavior. And deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in some formal way, they must confess Christ or they wouldn't be among us, right? They've got to be to appearances and and by their claims, Christians, or they wouldn't be among us. And yet Jude says that 
though they do that with their lips, they profess a relationship with their lips, the effect is they deny the lordship of Christ and advocate something the very opposite of where the Lord Jesus would lead us. So that is what moved Jude to drop the letter he was going to write and instead write this letter. He says, what does he say? Exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered, handed down to the saints. Exhorting, urging, pleading with you to contend, to fight, to struggle, to do battle if need be for this faith. And then you know, uh, if you've read the letter, that the tone of the rest of the letter is, is very admonitory. It's full of warnings about false teaching. Now, many people would have said to Jude, particularly today, oh, that was a big mistake. That's not what people want. They don't want that kind of a letter. They don't want a letter full of warnings and criticisms and edges. They want something gentle and happy and positive. They want something uplifting. Go back to that first letter you're going to write. This, this thing you're concerned about, it'll take care of itself. Just accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative. And, and that's the thing. That, that's the real thing. And that would be the advice of a great many today. They would tell Jude, you, you're making a big mistake. People don't want to hear this. People will not turn out to hear this sort of teaching. So why did he? Why did he? Think about it. Because without what he writes about, the other kind of letter wouldn't be possible. How can you write about our common salvation if we don't understand what that salvation is? How can we talk about a shared faith and a shared belief if we aren't agreed about what the faith is? If we don't know who Jesus is or what he did, if we don't know what the gospel means, if we aren't agreed on on where the edges and the lines fall, how can we talk about anything that's in between? We don't know what it is. We don't know where the middle of it is. Without a grasp of the faith, that is firm enough that we can contend for it, well, there's no talking about the faith and all of the fruits that come from the faith. Without that, there is no this. Without understanding the faith, we can't talk about the fruits and the blessings of the faith. If people are tearing that apart, then, then they're sawing the branch off the tree, and you can forget about a continued production of fruit, right? Because that stops after the branch leaves the tree. Uh, I, I tell you, people who, and they're not just today, there have been this sort of people all, uh, all through church history who downplay and trivialize biblical orthodoxy. They are really making, they're the ones making a massive mistake. What is biblical orthodoxy? It just literally means staying in a straight line with what Scripture says. And the importance of determining what Scripture says and understanding then what's the opposite of what Scripture says and understanding how to show and demonstrate what Scripture says. Well, there are people all along who have said, well, I don't want that. I don't come to church for that, for creeds and statements of faith. I just come to church for Jesus. To which, of course, the response is, what Jesus? Jesus who? Jesus who is what? Jesus who did what? Jesus who is what to us? Jesus who may be known how? Oh, you answered those questions and now you're back into teaching. You're back into doctrine. And that's why Jude says, well, we've got people in who are basically eroding the very foundation of that. So I've got to write to you about defending that. Earnestly contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered to the saints. They, they say they're bringing an improvement. They cannot be bringing an improvement because the perfect thing has already been delivered over.
So that's the first thing that we uh, learn. It's a crucial issue. It's an issue so important that it pushes Jude's first intent to write about salvation and says, no, this is what I've got to write about. Secondly, we learn that it is the faith that has been delivered. We learn this about the faith. It has been delivered. Number two in your outline. It has been delivered. Now, this is a passive phrasing. Delivered by someone. Not generated by me, but delivered to me by someone. And that someone is God. So, letter A, delivered by God through the apostles is the first thing we want to understand. I'll give you some scriptures that you should note down and and look at more carefully later. Uh, Jesus foretold this delivering over of the faith himself a number of times. One of those is John 14, 26. In John 14, 26, the Lord Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He says this to the apostles. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. So why could they write those Gospels? Because the Holy Spirit enabled them, because he taught them, because he led them. Where do you look for complete agreement in all things about the faith? You look in the writings of the apostles. After that, not so much. Divisions start as soon, well, actually during the New Testament history, but there's divisions right afterwards. But in the teaching of the apostles is the teaching of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus foretold in John 14, 26. In John 15, verses 26 and 27, John 15, verses 26 and 27, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness. There's kind of an emphasis in the grammar. It is he, it is that very one who will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So will the apostles bear witness? Yes, they will. But, but why and what witness? They'll bear the witness the Holy Spirit gives them to bear. They will speak by inspiration. They will write by inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that what they write is the truth. He's the spirit of truth. And they write truth. Why? Because they're brilliant men? Because they were great philosophers? Because they were more intelligent than others? No, no, and no, respectively. They're able to write truth and only truth because the Holy Spirit works that in them and through them. And finally, John 16, verses 12 through 14. Jesus says, now hear this, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus says there is more to teach them, but the way he will teach them is by sending the Holy Spirit to tell them everything that he still has to teach them. He will die, he'll be buried, he'll rise from the dead, he'll ascend to the right hand of the Father, but he will continue teaching the apostles until he's told them everything he needs to tell them. And he will do that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will glorify Jesus. How will he do that? By taking Jesus' words and giving those to the apostles. Now, there's a lesson for us. I just pause to say, you want to glorify Jesus? I know you do. You're a Christian. You want to glorify Jesus. How do you do that? By his word. The Holy Spirit glorified him by taking his word and giving it to the apostles. I, you glorify him by taking his word, believing it, doing it, and telling others about it. That's what glorifies Jesus.
So Jesus foretold this delivering of the truth to the church by the apostles. Uh, The early church knew this and accepted this. Acts 2.42, just the first part of the verse, Acts 2.42, after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we read, and the thousands were baptized by profession of faith in Jesus, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why did they do that? Because the apostles were teaching by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit poured out, was teaching through the apostles. So the center, the focus was not a style of worship, a style of dress, a style of music. The focus was the words of Jesus Christ taught through the apostles. Jesus said that the Spirit would give them his words. The church knew that the Spirit was giving them his words. And they, the apostles, knew it. The next verse is, uh, shows Paul's reflection of this. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-seven, In a very controversial section about the place of women in the church, uh, at that point where people today would fold like uh, houses of cards in high wind, uh, Paul doubles down and says, if anyone thinks he's a, he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are the command of the Lord. He identifies his writing with a command of Jesus Christ. So this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in and through the apostles. And with all that in mind, then we've got 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3 and 11, which I hope many of you uh, immediately think, well, that's where Paul states what the gospel is. Yes, it is. And remember how he puts it. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Now, that word received is the, the answering word to delivering over. If person A delivers something to person B, he receives it in turn. That's the verb here. We're receiving something delivered by an apostle. So I remind you of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. It's very important that we get that gospel straight because it is the only means of salvation. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered, and there's the same word Jude uses. When he says the faith delivered to the saints, Paul says, I delivered. The Holy Spirit gave it to him, and he delivered it to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. And then in verse 11, he says, whether then it was I or they, the other apostles, so we preach, and so you believed. Well, there's a picture of exactly what Jude is talking about. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would give the apostles his words, God's truth, to pass on inerrantly to believers. The early church saw that they did that, and Paul reminds them, that's what you got. You got what God gave me to give to you. Remember how how he goes on about that in Galatians 1, right, where people came in with a better gospel than he preached. No, 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 you don't just need Jesus. Jesus is great, but you need Jesus and the law of Moses. You need Jesus and the holy calendar. You need Jesus and circumcision. And Paul says, you know what? This gospel I preached, it was not something I learned or was taught. God gave it to me. And if anyone comes and contradicts it, then may he be damned forever. Whether it's me or an angel, any different gospel than the one I preached to you. So this is a very important thing that the apostles are very intense about. And if we say we're believers in Jesus, we're going to reflect their intensity. And this is something I remind you again, as as we've talked about before, this is something that sets the Christian faith apart from every other religion in the world or philosophy. In the case of every other religion or philosophy, the, the flow of truth is like this. 
It is something that by reflection and investigation and thought, we come up with and say, yes, this is the truth. From within ourselves, by our standards and our efforts, Christianity is a completely different deal. Christianity says that it's something that comes down to us from God. That, is, that the initiative is God's. That God parts the curtains and speaks His truth to us, and we simply receive it. I remember when I was a very young Christian trying to witness to a neighbor lady and um, made one of, one of, and not the last of many mistakes, um, with the best intention. I was telling her, about the Lord, and she was asking me questions, and I wasn't able to answer them all. And, and, I, and I said, I know I can't answer all the questions that somebody could ask, but, but I am happy to know somebody who does know the answer to all the questions. And then she started asking me questions about my pastor, and I thought, okay, this is what she wants to talk about. So I talked about that, and I only later, with my usual and still rapid-fire thought, I only later realized, oh, she thought I meant my, I meant my pastor. <laughs> she thought I was saying that my pastor knows the answers to everything. That is not what I was saying. He didn't. I don't. I'm talking about the Lord. And that's what Christian faith rests on. Not a pastor's best ideas or anybody's best ideas, but God's revelation and gift and unveiling of his truth. And so it's delivered to us by him. And so what that means and what is widely forgotten today and not, not nearly appreciated enough is that is what makes it non-negotiable. If it were a human discovery or conclusion or reflection, it'd be negotiable. It would be open to, yeah, that's why books have second editions and 14th editions, right? The author learns more. He gets some criticism. He refines, hopefully, makes his book better. There's no different editions of God's truth, though. The first edition is inerrant. God speaks the truth every time, first time, always, and only. So we don't negotiate. That's why Paul, why Jesus' call to conversion is not a, con a call to, you know, everybody pick up your coffee cup or your tea mug and your scholar's robe and have a sit with me in the faculty lounge. That's not the call, is it? What does Jesus say to pick up and do? Well, first he says, deny yourself. Then he says, take up your cross. Then he says, follow me. Not sit down and negotiate with me, but follow me. And, and I observe, this is why I wrote the World Tilting Gospel, because I, I realized that many people who were becoming Christians did not get what it meant to become Christians and what was involved and what we are confessing when we come to Christ. What's involved is a death to autonomy, a death to the idea we can be our own gods and make our own calls and figure out what's right by ourselves. It's a death to that. We deny that. We dethrone ourselves and bow down before Christ, which we can only do by an act of God, by regeneration, by being born from above, born anew. So this is something people don't get, and they enter the Christian life as if they're entering into a life of negotiation. And they find this truth is unpopular and their friends don't like this one and there's pressure on this one and just toss them over the side is non-essential. <laughs> well, that'd be great if it was your philosophy, right? It'd be great if it was my ideas. We could do that. But it's not. I, I still remember explaining something to, in my naivete decades ago to, to a, a smart person, not a Christian. And I was explaining something I was going to do and this person said, oh no, you shouldn't do that. Uh, you're going to regret that in 10 years. Well, I was doing what I was doing because I believed it was the command of the Lord in Scripture. 
And, and she was reasoning with me, saying, well, no, no, you'll, be, you'll regret that, so don't do that. And I realized right then, you just, you don't get what it means to be a Christian. And I can't explain it, evidently, that it's not a negotiation. I can't say, oh, you know, I don't think this will work out for me the way I want, so I won't do it. Well, that's not being a Christian. I'm not in a faith that is devised for my comfort. I'm in a faith that is revealed by God, delivered over to the saints. You don't negotiate it. You believe it or you don't believe it. And that's why Scripture calls us believers, because that's what a Christian is to do by definition. So it is delivered uh, through the apostles. And secondly, it is delivered once for all. Letter B, once for all. This revelation is a final revelation. There's a good parallel to this in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. You remember it, one of the most majestic books and beginnings in any book ever. Uh, God, after he spoke to the fathers and the prophets uh, in many portions and at many times, in these last days has spoken to us in the Son. Old Testament is a progressive revelation leading up to and culminating in the Son. And that's, that's, the, that's the sum. That's where we end for our age until the kingdom comes. And so what does chapter 2 say? Chapter 2 doesn't say, well, keep up your work negotiating and refining the Christian faith. What does chapter 2 say? You had better not drift from this. Why? Because it's final. Oh, yes, in the years to come, many would learn about it and refine, refine our understanding and expression. I mean, men like uh, Augustine and Chrysostom and Gregory of Nazianzus and, and uh, Calvin Knox and so many great men through the, the history of the church have helped in understanding Scripture, but they haven't, to the degree they've been faithful, they haven't changed the Scripture. They've, their focus has been Scripture. And then when people like Joseph Smith comes along or, or Baha'u'llah or, or others saying, uh, Mary Baker Eddy, fundamentally changing what this says and saying they're going to improve on it, oh no, that's ruled out. It's been once for all delivered to the saints. There's not going to be any revision of this faith in our age. And uh, that too popular thought in Christianity that among charismatics and others who who believe that God still sort of half mumbles and half whispers semi-revelation all the time with people popping up and popping off in church meetings in the name of God, not Scripture. That dulls this truth. That compromises this truth. It, it, it spatters this truth of the finality of God's revelation of His giving of the faith to us. And that's an important truth. So it is delivered by God through the apostles and is delivered once for all. This is a final revelation for us. And finally, letter C, it is delivered to the saints. Saints just mean holy ones. It means those who have been set apart for the ownership and service of God. And that's all believers. All believers, the saints are not a special class of Christian. A Christian, by definition, is a saint. As we've often said, there's only two kinds of people. There's saints and there's ain'ts, and there's no other levels between. So, to the saints, and, and this is not just an expression. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. What does he say about the way the unregenerate man hears the truths of God? 
Well, basically, he says he doesn't. He, he doesn't appreciate them. He doesn't welcome them. He doesn't discern their power and their truth. It's not because he's stupid. It's not because he, has, he lacks IQ. It's because he's unregenerate, and he simply does not see these things. He is blinded to these things. These truths are God's trust to us. Nobody else will welcome it. And, and it's been said and said, well, the Bible is God's love letter to his children. Now, it contains what is necessary to lead someone to become a child of God by adoption through Christ, but primarily it's written to us and for us. And I want to pause here and I want to do everything God enables me to do to help you think hard about this and think deep about this. He says, the faith has been delivered over once for all to the saints. And when you hear that, what do you think of? Do you think of the faith as if it was kind of a gray mass? Just a bunch of assertions, a bunch of assertions, affirmations and denials, statements of truth, you know, something that's out there, maybe something that's theoretical and intellectual, and maybe you think it's boring, maybe you think it's not really relevant. Is that what you think of when you think of the faith? This is theology, you know, it's not life. I really want life, and that's just like doctrine, and that doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, if we think of it that way, we need to think again, because when Jude speaks of the faith being delivered over by God once for all to the saints, the faith is, it's, it's our life. It's, it's everything that we as Christians love and rejoice in and treasure and try and treasure and prize that sets us apart from the world and its pursuits when he's talking about the faith he's talking about the the revelation of the majestic person of god that there is only one god but that this one god eternally exists in three persons that's the faith in the character and attributes of this god that he is the almighty almighty creator of all things by the word of his mouth that he is holy 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 that the foundation of his throne is righteousness and that yet he is long suffering and he's kind and he's patient that he's forgiving and redeeming. All these revelations of the blessed, wondrous character of our God. That's the faith that Jude speaks of. And uh, the mighty works of God, his work of creation, his work of judgment in the flood, his work of deliverance from Egypt, and of course his great work of salvation in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus. This is all the faith. And the God's sole correct diagnosis about what our real problem is, which is not our upbringing, not our society, not the government not giving us enough money or giving us too much money, not anything like that, but our fallen nature, sin. Only the Bible tells us the absolute truth about what our real problem is, and only the Bible tells us the absolute truth about God's wondrous plan of salvation foretold from the very first moments of our history to the end of the Bible and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Only the Bible tells us that. That's what Jude means by the faith, the gospel, the work of God in sending his own dear son to save sinners, humbling himself, taking the form of a slave, being lifted up on the cross, bearing his people's sins, dying under the wrath of God, but risen signaling God's forgiveness and justification of all who would ever believe in him, and now ascended at his right hand, where he sits for all time to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. 
That's the faith that Jude is talking about. And so redemption by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the blood of Christ alone, that's the faith. Blood redemption, the hope, the assurance we have of eternal life, the eternal hope we have at resting and dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. And the, the, the hope and the assurance of God's coming kingdom, his righting of all wrongs, his establishing of a kingdom of righteousness. Well, that's, that's the faith. That's what he's talking about. All that. Is, is that boring? Is, is that irrelevant? Only non-believers think that. And, and it thrills the believer's heart. The new heart longs for that. The new heart loves that. The, the regenerate heart, the born-again person, this is what he loves and cherishes. This is what she prizes and rejoices in. It's marvelous truth God has given us to uh, keep and to cherish. That's what the faith is that is once for all delivered to the saints. And we're told to contend for it. Isn't it both at the same time humbling uh, that we even need to be told to contend for it. You, you, what would you think of a man who needs to be told to defend his wife? Buddy, that's your wife. You go stand up for her. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> well, there's something very wrong there. <laughs> you hadn't thought about that. You've got to feel for your man card and take a look and see if you've been keeping it current, right? Well, if a Christian doesn't treasure God's truth and love it and rejoice it and count it as a joy to grasp it and to contend for it. Something wrong, something not healthy, something needs repenting and rectifying. Letter B then, we've seen some of the things that verse 3 teaches us and they're glorious. Now let's look letter B. Verses 20 and 21 teach us uh, something about the faith that it is first of all most holy. It is the most holy faith. Let me read verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So first of all, we're told it is most holy. And to understand that, we should remind ourselves, what what does holy mean? And as I've taught you many times, this is the way to think about it. Holy means set apart to the ownership and service of God. Set apart to the ownership and service of God. That's why the Bible can can use it of people, it can use it of things and of observations. If they are set apart to God and He uniquely owns them and they're for His service, that's what makes them holy. And so he says this faith is holy, but it doesn't just say it's holy. That would be a great statement. Meaning this faith is something that belongs uniquely to God, but he says it's most holy. This is the only time we find that word in the entire Bible, the Greek translation of the Old Testament or the New Testament. Most holy, he says. So he is saying that it's, it belongs to God completely. It is entirely his, and it's about him. This faith that has been delivered that we're to build ourselves up in is a gift of God, and it's about God, and it's how we serve God. So, In the final analysis, the ultimate analysis, whose faith is this? Well, it's God's, because it is God's self-revelation that we are to receive and embrace and believe. It's God's revelation. It's not my thoughts about God or my conclusions or my philosophizing about God or my experience of God. It is what God tells me about himself, and it's his. And again, that's what makes it non-negotiable. The minute somebody shows that he's willing to, to trade this or that off from the faith, 
that's the minute that he shows he doesn't really get what this is. He doesn't get what this relationship is. It's not mine to negotiate. You know, suppose somebody comes up, knocks at your door and, and says, all right, I'm here for the piano. And you say, how are you here for the piano? And, and I'm standing on the curb and they say, oh, that guy sold it to me. What would you say? It's not his to, ser- to sell. <laughs> it's not his piano. It's not his to sell you. I'm sorry. You've been bilked. Well, this faith is not mine to negotiate or change or alter. It's a most holy faith. We must get this. It is most holy. And secondly, yet somehow Jude says it is ours. Build yourself up on your most holy faith. Now, how can it be at the same time most holy and mine? Well, because it is by faith that that faith becomes my faith. That God calls you and me to believe in His Word. And so when we understand what it says, and we believe that it's true, and then we embrace it and submit to it, then that becomes our faith. Do you see? We have made that our faith. And that is how we connect with God. By hearing what He says about Himself and accepting it as true for us. So you know you hear people say today, well, this is my truth, and and this is true for me, and this works for me. Well, every Christian say, well, this is my truth. This is my truth. God's truth is my truth. This is what teaches me, leads me, and I submit to it. I don't negotiate with it, and I, to the best of my ability, I don't play games with it. So this is how somebody personally comes to know God. And I want you, dear friends, to note this very well. The faith does me no good until it becomes my faith. The faith does you no good until it becomes your faith. Hearing it is a great thing and will damn us forever if we don't listen to what we hear and submit to it in saving faith. It only does us good through repentance and faith. And that's, of course, what we're called to do. So it is most holy... Secondly, it is ours. And thirdly, it is the key to remaining in God's love. Number three, it is the key to remaining in the love of God. The key to remaining in the love of God. How do I see that? Well, you see in in Jude 20 and 21, three ing words, right? Building, praying, and what's the third? Verse 21. Building, praying, and waiting. So notice he says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the command. And that one command involves those three ing words. How do I keep myself in the love of God? Building myself up in this most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, you see? So we're just focusing this week on the, on the first of those, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Do you see? How do I keep myself in the love of God? Well, first I do it by building myself up on my most holy faith. It's the key to remaining in the love of God. How do I experience God's love? How do I keep, as it were, my radio tuned to the frequency of God's love so that I'm walking in His love? Well, the first part of it is 
building myself up on the most holy faith. This is the key to the enjoyment of God's love. Not merely possession of it. Everybody who has a Bible possesses that faith. But actively and continually building myself up in that faith or or on the foundation of that faith. I build myself up. You see, so is it just theoretical? Is it just vague and impractical? Well, it depends. Do you think staying in God's love is theoretical, vague, and practical? Do you think God's love is boring? I I dare say that if you do, then, then you probably are not regenerate. This is what the child of God treasures, not being parted from the love of God. And what keeps us in the experience of God's love is advancing in our possession of our most holy faith, growing in our grasp of what he has revealed to us. So, this then teaches us about the faith. In these verses 3 and 20 and 21, uh, it gives us a basic and necessary understanding about the faith. But now Roman numeral 2, let's see what we must understand about ourselves. Roman numeral 2, what we must understand about ourselves in relation to that faith. We've already hinted at some of this, but now we'll focus on it. So this most holy faith, what do I need to understand about myself? What do we need to understand about ourselves in relation to this faith? First, we must contend for the faith. That's what verse 3 said, right? I was going to write one kind of letter, but then I realized what I really need to do right now is write to you, urging you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed over to the saints. So we must contend for the faith. This should have the greatest practical impact for how every one of us approaches the idea of church. Let me try to illustrate this. So suppose you just find yourself in a meeting and it's, it's in a tent and everybody's dressed in khaki and they're sitting on chairs and up at front is, you recognize a man who's, who's a general. He, he's a general and he's got a map and he's up there pointing at things on the map and talking about strategies and timing and uh, offense and defense and difficulties, and he's laying this all out, well, how are you going to listen to him? Well, with what attitude and what degree of attentiveness are you going to follow what he says? Well, that kind of depends, isn't it? doesn't it? After he's done, are you going to go back to your home that's not even in the zone of combat and isn't affected by it? Or are you one of the people who needs to carry out this plan that he's talking about because you are in that war? See now, this illustrates the two attitudes, very generally, with which people come to church and hear about God and the Christian life. Do they listen as people who are in a war, hearing absolutely necessary information that their very welfare and the welfare of everyone they care for depends on? Or are they simply observers there to hold up, you know, three... Eight, one, as to what, how good of a presentation they think it is, but not, not that applicable to themselves personally. Well, what Jude tells us here is we are in that war. We are combatants in that war. And he is writing to urge us to contend earnestly for this faith. You see, because here, here is how he sees it. And this is how it is. This precious gift has been entrusted to us, to the saints, It's been given us by God, and we need it, and we need to contend for it. 
We can't take a, a pietistic dodge. What's a pietistic dodge? Oh, to say, well, it's God's truth. It doesn't need any defending. It doesn't need any contending for it. And even someone I admire has said, well, you know, I don't defend uh, the Bible any more than I defend a lion. You know, I just open the cage and let it go. Uh, there's truth in that. And yet there's this verse, which calls you and me to contend for the faith to struggle, to give effort, to, if need be, wrestle and fight uh, for the purity and the truth of the faith. See, this is our God-imposed role. We are the ones he calls to do this. Not, not angels, not rocks, not parakeets, puppies, and putty cats, but us, the saints. It's our role to contend for the faith. Now, I I really want to call you to think very hard about this, that this is a call that goes out to who? It goes out to the saints. Which saints? Here's a real question. I know it's hard to tell when it's a rhetorical question. And which saints is this call go out to? Just saints. That's right. There's no further qualifier. It's just to the saints. And remembering that there's only ain'ts and saints, and if I'm a Christian, I'm saying I'm a saint, well, then this goes out to me. Now, let me ask you again a real question. Would you say that professed Christendom, that is everyone who says he's a Christian in America, let's say, is in great shape or really bad shape? Really bad shape? What, would, what would you say? Oh, really bad shape. It doesn't seem like there's a, a consistent voice about anything. Really, really. False teaching is more the rule than the exception and compromise and watered down, you know, vaguely deistic pragmatism is is what you can hear from pulpits and certainly not the emphatic preaching of the Word of God. Well, now, here's here's a question, and I'm torn as to whether to make it a real question or a rhetorical question, but but I, I want you to think about, like I'm asking is a real question, but don't answer, I'll say. Who would you blame for that? Who Who would you say is to blame for the wretched state of the church, we've all agreed is in wretched state. Whose fault is that? And, and I think a great many would say, well, it's heretics. It's apostates. It's false teachers. It's, it's pastors who won't preach the word of God, or who preach a watered-down message. It's, it's these megachurch pastors who just tell people what they want to hear, some sort of watered-down humanism or just, you know, advices for a happier life that maybe only occasionally glances across the Bible in the most superficial way. It's, it's Joel Osteen, it's Kenneth Copeland, it's Joyce Myers, it's, it's the woke It's the liberals, it's the charismatics, you know, it's all their fault. Well, you know, if that were your answer, Jude certainly does warn against them, doesn't he? He says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, he says. So he he talks about false teachers and false prophets, and he certainly doesn't let them off. But who was supposed to contend for the faith so they couldn't sneak in? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Ah, the saints. That's right. See, don't notice that verse 4 comes right after verse 3. <laughs> and it's, it does that for a reason. I felt, let me just re uh, inflect I felt the necessity, right, necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered, handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Who let them creep in and who didn't notice them? Well, you, you, 
saints. I'm a saint too, by the grace of God. But it's the saints who let them creep in. It's the saints who weren't on guard. It's the saints who didn't notice. And here they are all over the place. And Judas saying, I guess I have to, I can't talk about, you know, like we all agree on salvation. I go back to basics and say, you need to contend for this faith and be on the lookout lest they creep in like this. So where does he put the blame? Well, it's, it's on the saints. So we simply cannot blame false teachers alone. We can't blame uh, feckless or cowardly pastors alone who don't want to offend people by stepping on toes. Oh yes, they have their, their judgment to bear. Uh, and yes, they're to blame, but we can't blame them alone because who is supposed to guard, who is supposed to contend for the faith against error? And you might say, well, pastors are supposed to do that. And I would absolutely agree with you. Titus 1, this is the role of the elder, to, to guard the edges, to guard the doors and not let error into the church. But who does Jude say to contend earnestly for the faith? Just the pastor? Well, I'll tell you what, a pastor can contend But if the people he cares for aren't listening, aren't learning, aren't growing, aren't taking it seriously, or having little discussion groups about his sermons, well, then it's not going to happen because he can't do it alone. He's not supposed to do it alone. He's supposed to train the saints for the work of service, Ephesians chapter 4. So who does Jude say to contend earnestly for the faith? The saints. Who needs to build themselves up in the faith? The saints. So... You say, oh, pastor, surely not. That's, that's very harsh of you to say. You're saying that, that the wretched state of Christendom is really not just false teachers. It's really, well, it's, it's Christians. Surely not. Oh, surely so. You tell me, who pays for the TV time? You, you think they pay with their own money? You think false teachers just pull out of their own pockets and get on TV? Oh, no. It's professed saints. Who fills these massive stadiums to to hang on their words and watch their show? Well, it's professed saints. Who fills these mega churches and rewards compromise and entertainment and, and pragmatism? Well, it's professed saints who do that. So, it's Christians professed who are out looking for everything in the world other than the Word of God. What, what does many Christians, when they're looking for a church, what's the sort of thing that, they, that is a, the most important to them? That if they came to a church that actually was teaching the Word of God, but they would still leave and not come back if it didn't have what? I heard music. A special kind of music. Coffee bar, maybe. Special study group. Enough people, enough this, enough that. You know, I, it was good teaching. It was faithful and stuff, but I'm really looking for something else. And there you have it, right there. There you have it, right there. We're called to contend for the faith and build ourselves up, but it's not our priority. And we're so sad things are in such a bad state. And those awful teachers, they they didn't do it by themselves. They were born up on adoring shoulders of people who were not on the lookout, who were not contending for the faith. Well, because of the missing second ingredient, we've got to contend for the faith, but letter B, we must know the faith, and there's the problem, really. We must know the faith. You can't contend for what you don't know, right? So I say to you, uh, I run past you and I say, okay, protect your ground, and I keep running, and you call after, after me, which is my ground? <laughs> what, what part am I defending? You didn't tell me that part. I mean, I'm ready, but what is my ground? I don't know where it is. 
Uh, that's the state of many professed Christians. They don't know what it is they're contending for. They couldn't of themselves say what the Bible says about God, the gospel, uh, Christian living, the church, uh, because that's not been really the most important thing to them. And you see, that's the hinge between letter A and letter C. Letter C is going to be build yourselves up in the faith. Letter A was contend for the faith. I can't do either of those things if I don't know what the faith is, can I? How can I contend for what I don't know? And how can I build myself up in what I don't know? See, without, without knowledge of what God's Word teaches, I can't be faithful in my defense of it, and, and I'm not going to have joy. Joy, that's a leap. What does that have to do with anything? Well, that's how I know the love of God. Can I have joy as a Christian without being in the love of God? That's the heart of my joy. I, I, can, I can part with everything else as long as I know God loves me, as long as I'm assured of God's love for me. And my experience of that depends on my building myself up in the Word of God as a growing Christian. So uh, it, it is a sad thing you even have to say this today because in a healthy church, this would be our greatest joy. And I, I wouldn't need to say it any more than I need to say, you know, you really ought to eat some bluebell every now and again. You don't need me to tell you that, you know, it, it sells itself. Well, if we are spiritually healthy, we wouldn't need to be told we need to build ourselves up in the faith and contend for it. But obviously we do, because here it is. So we need to hear it. You know, you might say, well, you know, I think all your teaching has been unnecessary because a Christian just is going to desire the word of God. Well, then why did Peter say it? <laughs> well, why did he say it in 1 Peter 2? Why did he say as newborn babes earnestly desire the pure milk of the word. Why do you say it if we don't need to hear it from time to time? So we've got to know the faith. And finally, letter C, we must build ourselves up in the faith. We must build ourselves up in the faith. And that demands, I'm going to suggest four things. Not an exhaustive list, of course. But we must build ourselves up in the faith, and the first thing that that demands is responsibility. Let me again underline what Jude says. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Jude urges us to contend for the faith. Jude urges us to build ourselves up in the faith. It is something we need to take responsibility for. It's not somebody else's job. The, the husband has a ministry to his wife, but he can't build her up in the faith if she's not doing what God calls her to do. And children can't, and a church can't. A pastor is to preach the word and, and give green pastures in the word of God to his sheep, but they've got to eat. They've got to eat, they've got to digest, they've got to put it to use. We've got to take responsibility. And... and what do you do for that? Well, First Peter 2, again, Peter says, as newborn babes, long for the unadulterated milk of the word. Long for it, because I've been born again. And Ephesians chapter 4, remember Ephesians 4, Paul says that the role of the pastor teacher in a church is to train the saints for the work of ministry, that everyone might grow to the stature of the fullness of Christ and might be producing the growth of the body by the exertion and activity of each individual part, Paul says. That is individual responsibility. Yes, a pastor needs to do his part, but he's not a one-man show. He's a, he's a player manager. 
And the people need to take and play their positions with excellence for it to work. Hebrews chapter 5, where the, the writer says that, you know, you've, you ought to be grown up to where you can teach now, but you've forgotten the basics, and I'm really worried about you. Uh, by now you ought to be able to eat meat, and you can only barely stand milk. So this is God's call to every one of us. We need to take responsibility. It's a great thing to know. It's, it's sad that it, to some it's not welcome, but it's a great privilege. It's not the priests. It's not locked up to a pulpit. It's not kept from the people of God. It's God's gift to the people of God. Each of us need to take responsibility for that gift. Secondly, uh, it demands aim. It demands purpose. You're at that meeting hearing the general talk so that you can know what your role is in this battle and you can do it well. It takes aim. What does what Jude say? He says, building, not just building up your database or building up your theoretical knowledge. He says building yourselves up. It takes growth. And, and growth takes uh, devotion. It, it takes a, a reading of the Word of God that involves digestion and reflection and memorization and prayer. That's what makes it part of us with the aim that I be able to contend for it and with the aim that I be building myself up in it. It takes responsibility, aim. It takes the use of means. God has given us means for building himself up. And of course, the primary means is the word of God itself. And what is the secondary means? A Bible teaching church. Some place where a pastor will preach the word of God to you and you know that he will say it to you whether you're going to like it or not. You know that he'll say it if he knows it'll offend people or people will like it. But he will, he will say what the word of God says to the best of his ability to be faithful to God and not to play to the applause and popularity among people. And that as, as, as Paul says to Timothy, time's going to come when nobody's going to want to hear the word of God. Right? 2 Timothy 4, right? He says exactly that. He says, preach the word in season, out of season, because the time's coming when nobody will want to hear it. And what should Timothy do then? He should go find the things they do want to hear, right? Is that what Paul goes on to say? So when they stop listening to the word, you find what they do want to hear. They want a particular kind of atmosphere, mood, or, or, or worship, or instruments, or coffee bar, or whatever. You go do that. No, he just says, preach the word, because you stand before God's judgment not man's judgment. So you, you need to be somewhere where you've got that use of means. And finally, seizing opportunities. Seizing opportunities. What am I talking about? Well, suppose a man says, you know, I'm just so concerned that I just don't think I'm really growing. What would one of my first questions be? Do you come to the men's fellowship? Just once a month. It's not a huge sacrifice, but we do go through Scripture. Our lady says that I say, are you free Friday mornings? Can you attend that Zoom? There's really a good engagement with the Word of God. Or Sunday evenings, the ladies really get into the Word of God. Are you using that? Are your children using the opportunities that there are uh, for their age range, for extra engagement of the Word of God? Those are means. You know, well, I'm, 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 I'm not growing. I'm sorry to hear that. Are you using the means that would help you grow? There are means provided, and, and Lord willing, we mean to provide more. I've got plans to provide more as we go along, but are, are you using the ones that are there? Uh, because it's not magic. It is given to us. If it were magic, then why would Jude say building ourselves up? I just would need to go limp and passive and, and let go and let God, like that little heretical saying says. 
But that's not what it says. It says building yourself up. I've got to take responsibility. I've got to aim. I've got to use means. And I've got to seize opportunities to do that. So let me wrap it up. The lesson to us, they're simple and they're straightforward. I can't make them uh, impressively deep because they really are very practical. God has delivered over to us a priceless gift. A priceless, precious gift in giving us a body of truth he calls us to believe that we can absolutely count on as true. And to serve God and to know his love, it is our responsibility to learn what that truth is, its edges and its content, to contend earnestly for the purity of that truth, and continually to build ourselves up in that truth. That's God's path. Will we walk it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word, and for what it says to us and the power and clarity with which it speaks. Thank you that it stands as a witness to each of us, challenges each of us wherever we are. There's none of us who's attained perfection. We're all in need of growth, and you call us to grow. And thank you so much for giving us everything we need to grow for life and godliness. Thank you, above all, for the clear, precious, powerful provision of the truth of your word a lamp in a dark place. And Lord, we are in a dark place. Help us heed closely and walk by its light. In Jesus' name, amen.